How did Putin rise to power and how much should we be worried that he stayed there? Stephen Lee Myers will join us to talk about his new biography, The New Tsar. He's embraced not just the Soviet traditions, the instincts that he's always had, but he's embracing a kind of vision of, of the leader of the state in a very czar-like way, the imperial czar. What happens when one set of twin boys realizes he is a she? Amy Ellis Nutt will be here to discuss her new book, Becoming Nicole, The Transformation of an American Family. Nicole, even as Wyatt, was always who she was, a twin who really liked girls' things, who in the beginning called herself a girl boy. Our children's books editor, Maria Russo, joins me for a conversation about our biggest children's book issue of the year. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. And Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Stephen Lee Myers joins us now from Los Angeles, where he is on book tour for his new book, The New Czar, The Rise and Reign of Vladimir Putin. Hi, Steve. Good morning. So you are currently a uh, national security correspondent for The Times, but for a long time, you were in Russia as bureau chief. That's right. Okay. I started working there in 2002 to 2007 returned in 2013 for another year and a half or so. Did you know when you were there that you wanted to write a book about something about Russia? Did you know you wanted to write about Putin? When I was there the first time, this idea came up, uh, and I discussed it with people and um, uh, and with my agent, uh, Larry Weissman. And I, you know, I often said, you know, we don't know how this is going to end. Uh, at the time, Putin was wrestling with the idea of would he return uh, to the presidency, stay on as president for life, and so forth. He eventually, of course, handed power over to his protege and served as prime minister for a few years. So at the time, I thought, you know, it's too soon. Um, and then when he announced that he was going to come back uh, to the presidency, um, essentially a primary of one voter uh, himself, that's when I thought there needed to be a book to explain how he was able to do that and, and wield such power. So for people who are constantly confused about that, could you just quickly explain Medvedev is the current president? And Vladimir Putin is the current prime minister? Putin was president for two terms. And then um, the constitution in Russia limited, limits the president to two terms. And at that point, he faced a question of whether or not to change the constitution. So rather than do that, uh, which I think is very important to understanding him, he handed power officially to Dmitry Medvedev, who's a very close aide of his, uh, has been for, for decades. Medvedev served as president then for four years with Putin appointed as his prime minister. They called it the tandem, like a bicycle. The two leaders would uh, lead the country together. Though nominally, um, Medvedev was, for four years, head of state. And his re-election came up. That's when Putin intervened and said that, no, he was going to return and and run, quote-unquote, for the office of the presidency. And then he took over again in 2012. So can they just both keep cycling out of these roles? You know, in principle, yeah. And um, some people think that th- that's exactly what might happen. You know, they did change the uh, the length of the presidential term to six years. So Putin can serve now until 2018, his next re-election. And, and I use election very loosely. And then serve a second term again, uh, which would keep him in power until 2024. So honestly, I think at this point, Putin's not really thinking about the question of secession again, but eventually he'll have to. So he's effectively ruled Russia for the last 15 years. Uh, And a little bit longer and counting. How did he get there? 
You know, I think one of the most fascinating things about Putin's biography is is how, in a matter of uh, three short years, he arrived in Moscow as a fairly low-level bureaucrat uh, in the government. Um, the, the mayor he had worked for in Petersburg had been beaten in an election, um, you know, back when there were still uh, somewhat democratic elections in Russia, and, and Putin was out of work, and he showed up in Moscow. He slept on a friend's couch and finally got a job in the bureaucracy in the Kremlin. Very short amount of time began to rise up through the ranks, and it, it almost seems accidental uh, in a way because, you know, it was the time when Yeltsin was under a lot of pressure, both uh, because of his health, but also uh, scandals surrounding him. And, you know, he, there was a fiscal crisis in uh, Russia in 1998. And e- each time Yeltsin would reshuffle his government, Putin would seem to float up to a little bit higher and more important post. By all accounts, conducted himself very professionally and competently, uh, which stood out in Russia at the time uh, where there was a lot of intrigue and fighting going on. And eventually, you know, that drew Yeltsin's attention, and he began to see him as somebody that he could trust, somebody who wasn't ambitious, who didn't seem to be gunning for the job, Yeltsin's own job. Uh, And that gave Yeltsin even more confidence in him. And so in a matter of, of, again, three short years, he arrives in, in Moscow kind of as a nobody, and then Yeltsin turns to him as prime minister in August of 1999. And again, because he was appointing prime ministers every few months at that point, Mm -hmm. most people thought Putin would just come and go. He managed to uh, really impress not only Yeltsin and the people around him, but also the voters. And so his popularity skyrocketed. And Yeltsin then on the New Year's Eve of the new millennium decided to appoint him president, um, acting president, when he stepped down. So Yeltsin may have considered Putin unambitious, but I'm assuming you would disagree with that characterization. You know, I think actually at the time Yeltsin was right. He he didn't show a great deal of uh, political ambition, certainly. He, it wasn't a job he seemed to seek at all. In Yeltsin's own account of when he decided to tell him, appoint him to this job, Putin said he wasn't ready for it. There's no question since then, since he's had the office, that he's um, pursued his vision of Russia very ambitiously. What is his motivation? That's the big question, I guess. First of all, as a, as a political leader, I think that um, he has a sense that many Russians do of grievance um, and loss for the power that the Soviet Union once was. Even if they lament many aspects of the Soviet Union, the political repression and so forth, um, most people want to return to a Russia, at least, that had the kind of superpower status, the respect in the world that the Soviet Union once had. You know, that's the Soviet Union of Putin's youth. And so I think his his biggest ambition, above all, is to create, again, a great Russia. There is also an element, I think, of protecting his own power um, and protecting those who are around him who've become enriched by his power. Um, you know, the cronies, they're called sometimes, the people who have been sanctioned by the United States and Europe. Um, because of the actions in Ukraine. But you call him, in the title of your book, the new czar, which obviously isn't a Soviet term. Did you choose that word deliberately? You know, it's if, if you look back in history, um, the leader in Russia and then the Soviet Union, um, there, there's a certain consistency in the, the you know singular force of the leader. Even in Soviet times, there was a little bit more of a Politburo that they had to navigate. But it was a deliberate choice because I think early on, in his presidency and his rule, you know, the, he would eschew this notion of the cult of personality. He would even speak out against it, and he would talk about institutions in the office, 
of the presidency, respecting the Constitution as he did when he decided not to change it and just become president for life. But increasingly, especially since he's returned, he's embraced not just the Soviet traditions, the instincts that he's always had, but he's embracing a kind of vision of of the leader of the state um, in a very czar-like way, the imperial czars unchallengeable, you know, even providential in some respects, you know, the close relation between the church and the state, you know, there are aspects of of his power that I think are reaching deeper, much deeper into uh, history. One definitely uh, Soviet term that's used to describe him as, as the eternal KGB man. Do you see him that way? I think that there's no question that that's a, a huge part of his um, of his background and his character. I mean, he wanted to join the KGB when he was an impressionable young teenager seeing a film, uh, quite good film actually, about uh, a secret agent in World War II. And from that point on, I think it's, it's his, his view of the intelligence services, of the security services, and how important they are um, to the security of the state, um, you know, to personal security, um, to the people that he feels like he can trust. Uh, his closest friends are are all people he served with in the KGB, even went to school with, you know, in, in the 1970s. So I think it's inseparable from who he is. So in a much more complicated way than some people characterize it as just once a KGB agent, always a KGB agent. You know, he did resign from KGB after the coup in 1991, um, you know, broke with the agency in a way. But nonetheless, his respect for the security services for the work of the intelligence seems to be an, a huge part of his character and increasingly policy of Russia. In Russia, how is he viewed? Is that different? Is the perception uh, within Russia different from our perception of him? You know, recently his um, opinion rating in the uh, in the poll that's been uh, done consistently since he came to office reached its highest point ever, uh, almost 90 percent, 89.9. And, you know, I take polls uh, with a grain of salt. I was going to say, how reliable Russia, are they? Especially, I'm impressed that there are still 10% of people who will tell a stranger on the phone that they don't uh, support the president. But there's no question that uh, he has genuine popularity in um, in Russia among people. The annexation of Crimea, which has caused a horrible breach in Russia's international relations, was widely cheered across Russian society. And I think a lot of that has to do with the power of propaganda, you know, that there is a singular message that people consume um, because of state control of media. Even during hard uh, periods when, you know, the economy has faltered, um, you know, there have been natural disasters, there have been terrorist attacks uh, before in Russia and another one apparently this weekend. And, you know, there's a resilience to his, his power uh, and his popularity uh, that I think stems from that desire or that culture in Russia of of wanting to have a strong man. I think that nostalgia I was talking about of being a great state again, the economy may be terrible, uh, jobs may be coming undone, corruption inside Russia, you know, is horrible. And, and many Russians feel it day to day. And yet they like the idea of the strong leader standing up to the world, standing up to Obama, standing up to Merkel, um, being a tough guy, Russia's back. You know, you saw that in the Olympics, you know. We're a great state again, you know, after this quarter century of chaos following the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, and it's it's a powerful uh, narcotic, I think, for people. And they really want to believe that. They don't want to believe that they're uh, a falling or diminished power. 
Given the fact that the economy is so bad and that so many Russians have seen their standard of living fall, how does Putin maintain that popularity? I think partly it is rallying people behind the state again, and the sense of the besieged state. I mean, we don't see it because we sit in the United States or in Europe and um, and, and look at Russia from the outside, but from the the information that ordinary Russians receive, um, the information that permeates the government, I mean, the entire political discourse um, is of Russia under attack. And it's under attack from the United States. They don't explain that the reason the U.S. is doing this is because they annexed Crimea, and that's a violation of international law. They don't hear that. They just hear the U.S. is trying to topple our country, trying to make us weak, push us back down to our knees. And you feel it. I felt it um, when I was there last of the kind of rising anti-American sentiment that kind of is turned up and down as necessary. And right now it's it's, it's at full volume uh, of a sense of the country under siege, um, you know, defending itself against the barbarians, defending itself against the terrorists in Syria uh, and in Ukraine. The, the sanctions, uh, yes, the economy is hurting because the Americans put sanctions on us and they drove down the price of oil. And, and so we have to unify against this horrible threat to our country. And, you know, that's something that resonates very deeply going back to Napoleon's invasion and certainly the Nazi invasion more recently. And, you know, it, it rallies people in a very effective way. The impression um, is that Putin is not suffering uh, financially um, after 15 years in power. Um, I mean, to what extent is he involved in the corruption? Has he aided the corruption? Has he benefited from it? I think it's hard to argue at this point that he has not created or at least dominated a system of favoritism of contracts going to large corporations that are headed by people close to him. He's put his own people in charge of every important state industry. Um, the state oil company is run by somebody who's an old, also security veteran um, uh, that he's known since the uh, early uh, 90s. I don't think it's possible for people to say that Putin hasn't created the climate of, uh, of impunity when it comes to corruption. Not that he's involved in every single corrupt deal. Mm -hmm. I don't think he takes, you know, uh, 25% of major contracts and stuffs the money into a mattress somewhere. I don't think it works that way. It's a much more informal understanding. Um, but there's no question, and, and people have sought to measure this, experts, uh, that corruption is worse than it's ever been in Russia. So there's no effort on his part, as there would be in the States, to portray himself as a kind of man of the people. I think he very much does that. I mean, I think the whole Kremlin propaganda apparatus is devoted to that. Um, I'm not sure it's as persuasive as it used to be, because now he's almost more like the father of the people, you know, and the, going back to the image of the czar. You know, they will periodically announce that they're fighting corruption. And, you know, every now and then a minister might be arrested, um, usually not so high ranking. And usually the case fizzles out. But they send messages that way that, of course, we're fighting corruption. But then, you know, the contracts keep going to favored companies and so forth. I want to bring up Putin's most recent birthday party because I think, you know, reading about it over here, it's so it would be very hard for Americans to understand um, how that might go over in Russia. Um, certainly, I think if uh, Obama threw himself that kind of birthday party here, it wouldn't fly. I was really struck by um, by him playing hockey, um, which he's been doing, actually. He took this up quite kind of late in life. Uh, I think he was already 60. Uh, and with great zeal and determination, he learned how to skate and 
wield the puck and plays with, um, again, some of these same business cronies that he's known forever since his childhood. He created an amateur hockey league. They call it the Night Hockey League. And the idea was to promote physical fitness and everything. The notion that the news agencies in Russia would cover um, this charity hockey match as though it were a real thing and Putin scoring goal after goal after goal, um, you know, seven goals on his birthday, uh, quite a huge accomplishment for a 63-year-old man. Among professional players. Yeah, but, you know, it was amazing how the goalie just kind of lost it. He couldn't stop a shot when, when the leader was skating at him. It was really quite remarkable. The fact that it was covered in such a adoring, even serious way. I mean, sometimes I think it's all tongue-in-cheek. And I actually asked a Russian journalist about this very specifically, like, who doesn't see that as just transparently idiotic? <laughs> um, and uh, and she said it. she thought it was. Uh, she, she saw it. She said she, she thought most people understood that it's a show, it's a performance. And yes, of course, no one's going to check the president um, to stop him from scoring, but that it's powerful nonetheless because it is the creating this leader. She says it's very important of a wim- for women of a certain age uh, to see the strong leader, you know, the, the male figure doing well, performing well at, you know, an age when uh, Russian men are already over the hill. So as ludicrous as we see it to be a quite effective strategy in a sort of classical propagandistic way. George Bush famously misunderstood Putin or misread him, the whole looking into his eyes uh, incident. How well do you think Obama understands Putin and what is Putin's perception of Obama? You know, in fairness to George Bush, his quote was sometimes misunderstood uh, and misquoted. He, he said he got a sense of the man's soul. And what he said, importantly, is that that he saw him as a leader who cared about Russia and cared about Russia's security interest, which actually is kind of true. Um, The one thing that he missed about uh, Putin, I think, and he came to realize this himself, uh, was that he thought Putin was trustworthy, and and he felt that Putin wasn't in the end, that um, over, over the you know, long presidencies overlapping, uh, they came to really distrust each other. Obama came in when Medvedev was in his interim role as president. They understood in the Obama administration that Putin remained a very important figure. But through protocol, they respected the office of the president as head of state and interacted with Medvedev in a way that they hoped um, would continue into a second term that would continue to create the institution of the presidency in Russia separate from Vladimir Putin. You know, they made some progress, they'll say, uh, in terms of arms control and, and World Trade Organization talks and things like that with Medvedev and Obama. The minute that Putin announced that he was coming back uh, to the presidency, the disappointment in Washington and other capitals was palpable, and Putin felt it. Putin understood that um, that he was not welcomed back as a leader, and he took that as an insult, a personal insult. Um, and I think that that soured that relationship from the very beginning. Um, and there was really no hope of recovering, partly because Putin, when he came back, you know, much more national, nationalistic, uh, much more aggressive and anti-American. He saw that what was happening uh, around the world as being um, orchestrated by the United States, even when it wasn't. And, you know, events in the Arab Spring, events in Ukraine, uh, Putin sees the U.S. as 
fighting against his return to power. He's very much personalized the idea of power in Russia. All right. Well, the title then of your new book is very fitting, The New Czar, The Rise and Reign of Vladimir Putin by Stephen Lee Myers. Steve, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It's great. Alexandra Alter joins us now with notes from the literary world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So you've got new Amazon news. Yes, there's new Amazon news, and it's fairly surprising. They've opened their first brick-and-mortar bookstore in Seattle. And this is something that had been rumored for several months. People were speculating about what the store might be like. But it's still surprising that it actually happened, you know, 20 years after Amazon entered the online retail business, that they would open a physical store. What does the store look like? You know, when the rumors started that Amazon was opening its first physical store, a lot of people thought it might be kind of a showcase for Amazon's devices, their Kindles, their tablets, or it would be a place to pick up Amazon orders, or it would just stock uh, books that are published by Amazon through their own imprints. But in fact, it looks pretty much like a normal bookstore. They have uh, 5,000 to 6,000 titles, which is actually rather small. The differences are significant, though. They've sort of incorporated Amazon customer reviews into the store in an interesting way. For example, some of the categories are most wished for cookbooks, you know, and they're looking at Amazon data to see which cookbooks people are looking for. The store also has a staff favorite section, which is, of course, a hallmark of many independent bookstores. But the difference at the Amazon store is that for the opening, the section included a few of Jeff Bezos' own favorite titles, um, including The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman and Traps by his own wife, Mackenzie Bezos. Here's his review of Traps, a page-turner written by an award-winning novelist who also happens to be my wife. One thing that has seemed to be an issue for Amazon's own publishing programs is getting stocked in bookstores. You alluded to that earlier. Are all of Amazon's own imprints titles in this new store? You know, I'm not sure if they're stocking all of them. Uh, I'm sure they're stocking some of the more popular ones, but I think they really wanted to emphasize that this wasn't going to be an Amazon showcase store and it's selling a lot, a whole diverse range of books. And as Jennifer Cast, who's the vice president of Amazon Books, told the Seattle Times, you know, they are using the store, the website data to sort of decide which books to put in there. But she said, quote, it's data with heart. They're not just picking the most popular titles. They're also looking at the quality of reviews. One of the bookstore sections is award winners 4.5 stars and above. So you can see how they're sort of culling data from their from their website to sort of decide what to what to put in the store. And, you know, this is an experiment for them. Um, they're a very experimental company, and they've said that if this succeeds, they'll be looking at other locations in other cities. In terms of where the bookstore is now, is there a dearth of bookstores in Seattle or in that area of Seattle, or is it directly competing against an existing brick and mortar? Well, there are there is a healthy independent bookstore community in Seattle, um, so it's not as though... Uh, there was an absence of stores and they're filling the void. I believe there was a Barnes & Noble in that area that had closed. So there is an absence in that regard. But I think there, you know, there's a pretty healthy independent community there. What's the reaction been like so far from the Seattle literary scene? It's interesting. There's been, of course, in this age of the Internet, there have been some customer reviews of the store itself. Some people have said it feels a little strange to go and shop in a physical store run by Amazon and it doesn't necessarily have the best, you know, some people said the customer experience wasn't 
somebody gave it two stars, for example. So, But they, it was their first week. They opened on Tuesday, so there's a chance that they're ironing out some kinks. And what's their goal? Why do this? You know, I think this is something they've been looking to do. They There were rumors that they were looking at the space in Manhattan as well. One sort of speculation is that independent stores are, are sort of coming back and um, maybe they've decided that there's some value in face-to-face store interactions and they want to have a little bit of a toehold in that. If it is indeed a test and they're planning to expand around the country, um, it could also be kind of a PR move to put a friendlier face on the company. They've had a lot of negative publicity this year. Um, first, there was the standoff with Hachette when they were delaying shipments and removing the buy button from some Hachette books as they were negotiating their contracts. Then there was the big article in series in the New York Times about um, you know how workers there are put through this grueling system. And so I think you know there could be a kind of PR angle where if you have face-to-face interactions, people might start to see Amazon more as, um, you know, a lover of books and a supporter of books, which is definitely how the company views itself, but it's not always how it's portrayed. Amazon also had some other good people news emerge this week in terms of their own family policies. They've actually provided better parental leave now for their employees. So that's some good news as well for Amazon employees. All right. Well, people will now have time to take care of their kids and read books. Thanks, Alexandra. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Amy Ellis Nutt joins us from Washington. She is the author of Becoming Nicole, The Transformation of an American Family. Hi, Amy. Hi. This book is about transgender children, which is certainly a current topic, but I imagine that you were you started working on the book before it was so in the news. How long have you been working on this? Probably we started about three and a half years ago, and honestly, at the very beginning, I was fascinated by the family. Um, the transgender child is uh, part of an identical twin pair. But at the time, I, I actually did say to my agent, this is fascinating, but are you sure anyone's going to want to read about a transgender child? So all credit goes to my agent for uh, for her foresight. It was a little bit in the air. I mean, there had been a story, yeah. I think, at that time in the Atlantic about kind of how, how young um, is it? "Quote unquote," okay to let a child um, express him or herself uh, as another gender. In fact, honestly, this story um, I give all credit to uh, Bella English at the Boston Globe, who uh, wrote about it first for them in December of 2011. At that time, there was some media response to it. Um, it's true, and the, the family did not want to pursue those at the time. They really wanted to protect their kids, you know, early teens, and wanted them to grow up. So uh, they were looking sort of, you know, down the line at at perhaps someday writing a book. So it was with that in mind that this was something that wouldn't come out until they had graduated college that they agreed to do this. How did you come across the family? I got together with the family really through serendipity because they were represented at the time by a lawyer, Jennifer Levy, who is someone that I had known in a former life as a perennial graduate student in uh, Boston years earlier. And um, I had just published a book uh, in my name was, was sort of in the news. And so she saw that and she thought, well, I know an author. Maybe she would be interested in doing this story. So um, it was complete luck that I was able to be the one to write about them. You, Your day job is as a health and science writer at the Washington Post. How much did that background and that expertise in writing about, you know, issues from the health and science perspective 
inform the research and writing of this book? A lot, Pamela. Um, actually, the previous book that I'd done to this, I, I'd done before becoming Nicole, was um, co-authoring uh, with Francis Jensen um, about the teenage brain. Um, and my book before that was actually a story about a man who basically undergoes a stroke and a personality transformation and a compulsion to do art. And so both of those stories were obviously heavily involved in neuroscience. And so it was kind of a, a kind of perfect, uh, perfect background in which to take a look at this story, not only from obviously the aspect of how does a family deal with this, a very ordinary middle-class family, but what does science tell us about what's going on? Let's talk about um, that ordinary family, uh, the parents, Wayne and Kelly Maines. Who are they? Where do they live? What What's their background? Wayne and Kelly are uh, live in uh, Maine. They met about 20, 25 years ago. They, uh, Wayne is uh, the head of uh, director of safety for the University of Maine school system. Kelly works in the sheriff's office. Um, they had wanted to have children, were unable to, but were able to adopt. And Wayne came from a very classic um, small town, upstate New York, grew up hunting, a uh, military veteran, described himself um, early on as being conservative Republican. He's still conservative, even if he's not Republican. And Kelly grew up in the Midwest. Uh, she was also adopted, but uh, not a traditional family life. She left home at 17. So they had different backgrounds. And I, I think that that counted a lot for, especially for Kelly, how she was able to embrace raising this child early on. She had no expectations about what a perfect family looked like. She wasn't worried about being disappointed if her child didn't turn out to be exactly what she wanted. And so I think that it equipped her really well to, from the very beginning, understand that her child was trying to tell her something and not that this was a problem, just that there was something different. And who are the children, um, born Jonas and Wyatt? Yes, born Jonas and Wyatt, identical twins, but from the age of two, Wyatt identified as a girl, barely sort of able to talk. It was clear and consistent and constant from that early age that she thought of herself as a girl. How did how did she show that? Certainly right from the beginning. And it wasn't just a matter of playing with Barbie dolls or dressing up. But she would say things to her mother uh, and father. Um, you know, when do I get to be a girl? Um, when will my penis fall off? Daddy, I hate my penis. I mean, uh, you know, at the age of two, you obviously you don't have a way of expressing gender, a sense of gender or gender identity except as something very basic um, from her being. And so this was something much stronger than simply uh, experiencing what it's like to sort of play with uh, toys that are different, you know, from her gender. What year was this? So they were born in October of 1997. So really, it's the late 90s. And frankly, you know, for Kelly, in the first few years, trying to understand her child, you know, she basically sat down one day and like you can imagine many modern parents do, literally typed into, you know, Google, boys who like girls' toys. And, and that's where it began. Um, in the late 90s, you know, she did not, had not really heard the word transgender, didn't understand it. And so it was all very much an education for her. What was it like where they were living in Maine to have a child who identified this way so young? Well, you know, 
precisely because Nicole, when she was Wyatt, um, identified so early on, she grew up basically with friends who accepted her for who she was, which was in the beginning looked like a boy sort of on the outside, but very soon was growing her hair and dressing more feminine, although it was a slow process. So they basically accepted her. Um, there were occasions with some teasing, but but very little of it. So she grew up kind of confident. It wasn't until really the fifth grade and the summer before the fifth grade when she was able to legally change her name, to which most of her classmates said, well, finally. But there was one boy at the sort of being pushed by and probably manipulated by a grandfather, began harassing her by following her into the girls' room. And how did the school handle that? You know, unfortunately, they were trying to figure things out along the way, but it appears that they kind of caved into the fear of lawsuits, which well, the grandfather was actually threatening. He was trying to make a point that, um, you know, he didn't believe that girls who were anatomically boys should be allowed in um, girls' restrooms. The school made a decision basically to assign Nicole to a staff restroom, essentially separate but unequal, essentially segregating her. As much as Kelly and then eventually Wayne tried to talk to the school, um, they were supported by counselors and teachers, but the administration just didn't seem to really get it. It took them filing a lawsuit to actually get the law changed in the state of Maine. You said um, eventually, Wayne, I think the transformation um, in your subtitle, the transformation of an American yeah. family, is as much about um, Wayne as it is about Nicole. What was what was his reaction and how did his views evolve? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. The biggest transformation really in the book is Wayne. And today he goes around and he talks to to people about uh, raising a transgender child, and especially to fathers, because he wants them to understand. It took his wife, it took his uh, self-education, and it took both his um, daughter and his son uh, for him to realize. But most especially, it was when his daughter was threatened and harassed that, as uh, the good father that he is, he sort of rose to the occasion. It was also at times when his son Jonas said, Dad, you know, face it, you have a son and a daughter. And he, he says his family taught him. What was the relationship like between Jonas and Nicole? Jonas and Nicole are, are wonderfully different and, and in many ways turn gender on its head in, in, in other ways, too. Jonas is someone who's much more poetic and philosophical. Nicole actually... Uh, you know, freely admits that, you know, Jonas is much more sensitive than she is. People ask Jonas, well, what was it like, you know, when you realized, you know, your brother, you know, was a sister? But there was no point in which he made that realization. Nicole, even as Wyatt, was always who she was, which was a twin who really liked girls' things, who in the beginning called herself a girl boy. And so the transition you know, to Nicole was as seamless in some ways for him as it was for Nicole. How old are Jonas and Nicole now? Uh, they just turned 18. They're both um, freshmen at different branches of the University of Maine. And as, as far as I know, and I've I've seen them tweeting in the middle of the night when they're staying up studying, they're both having, you know, fairly typical college experiences. And was the release of this book deliberately after they turned 18? It was certainly deliberate in that the parents didn't want this book to come out before 
the kids finished high school and really had been through their teen years and were and were launched. So, in terms of, of timing, obviously, uh, it's at a, a fascinating moment in American cultural history. What was their motivation in allowing you into their lives and and wanting this book to be written? Kelly was focused on her kids the whole time. And I think Wayne, because of the transformation he underwent, felt this very powerful need to tell his story, especially to men. And I think Kelly also recognized that while she didn't want this to infringe on her kids growing up, that they had a powerful story to tell. I mean, this is a very ordinary family. This is a family that's hard not to relate to. They have the same gifts, the same flaws, um, the same problems. And if it's not a transgender child, it's, it's, you know, other families can identify with other issues. And it's about not just obviously Nicole finding herself, but it's a family finding its identity. And they wanted people to understand especially what it's like to have a child and to raise a child who's transgender. You know, prior to this, we'd, we'd heard mostly from adults who'd ha- had to keep this, you know, secret from their families for many years. And this is a situation where it was not a secret in this family. So they were dealing with it from right from the beginning. How they did and at times didn't, I think they knew would be instructive for many, many people. Um, and it's a story very powerfully told in Becoming Nicole, The Transformation of an American Family by Amy Ellis Nutt. Amy, thanks again. Thank you, Pamela. Maria Russo, our children's books editor, joins us now. Hi, Maria. Hi, Pamela. So it's that exciting time of year for those who love children's literature. It's our biggest issue of the year. We have so many great reviews in this issue. Um, I will start with picture books. Always fun to start with. We have a fantastic review by the novelist Samantha Hunt, who's also a mom of three, on three really interesting books about really small children, babies and toddlers, and how they relate to their parents in funny ways. One of them is called The Menino, and it's a fantastic kind of fact-based look at what actually are these strange creatures called babies. I I should say that this book is not just for small children. This book is for everyone. It's true. Every grown-up who's seen this book has also been delighted and laughed at it because it, it, it does look at babies and say they're so strange. Why do they move like they're swimming through the water? <laughs> you know, in the air. They're swimming through the air. Why? Why? You know, what are those strange noises that they make? And, and it's all told through the sort of the voice and the perspective of an older sibling. Um, one of my favorite lines in it is about the baby. The way that he describes a baby waking up in the middle of the night is, you know, he calls the baby the menino, which I think means... It's, it's from the Portuguese. It's just a kind of a Portuguese endearment. It means like little little kid. Basically. Little kid. Um, he says, um, you know, the menino's alarm goes off in the middle of the night. And uh, <laughs> it's just full of, you know, this amazingly exotic. It's an exotic creature, which it is, too. It's true to an older sibling. Um, And then another book in that particular roundup is illustrated by the great Marla Friese. That's another one of my favorites in this issue. It's it's called Is Mommy? The author is Victoria Chang. It's a, a, a tiny child saying to their mom, is mommy tall or short? And the answer is always short. Or is mommy pretty or ugly? Ugly. And But it's said with such joy, and Marla Frazee's illustrations are so exuberant. And then at the end, the last question is, but do you love your, you know, short, ugly, boring mommy? 
yes! <laughs> and you really see, um, you know, the, a little bit more of a subversive take on uh, the parent-child relationship. Marlo Frazee illustrated um, Everywhere Babies, which I think is like one oh, of the go-to of books. She has so many great ones. The other book in there that's really interesting is a wordless book by a, a, a debut by a Chinese author illustrator named Guo Jing. It's called The Only Child. Interesting right now because it's kind of, you could call it a, a protest picture book. It's protesting the only child policy in China that was recently ended. So it's a, it's a long a uh, wordless story of of a a, ch- a very lonely child with no siblings and no one around who's left alone and so it kind of ends up in this fantasy beautiful fantasy adventure in a cloud wonderland but the author has talked about um the book coming out of this deep sadness she felt growing up under the one child policy oh, seemed to be a historical yeah uh, so this snapshot. I think this book is an interesting an interesting one let's talk about like the big children's novels of this fall i think the the the, the big one is probably Rick Riordan's well, new right. book well right there's a, a new series that Rick Riordan of Percy Jackson fame has started and it's called Magnus Chase and the Gods of Asgard. This first uh, installment is called The Sword of Summer. And now he's taking on Norse mythology instead of Greek mythology. And we have a, a review by Adam Gopnik, which is great to read. And ta- Adam talks a lot about um, the difference between Greek mythology and Norse mythology. Are Norse gods as good in terms of well, fodder for uh, They're for a little kids? bit more, um, I, think, I think they are. It's just a little bit more of a dark universe. It's a, it's a little bit less heroic. And Norse gods tend to be a little bit more resigned to fate and to to the tragedy of the human condition, whereas Greek gods are a little bit more um, heroic and adventurous, I would right. say. Well, we live in dark times. Yes, it's um, appropriate. And there are there's some other big names uh, who've come out with new books this fall. Yeah, we have a great review of Lewis Sackar's new book, Fuzzy Mud, which has already made its appearance for weeks on the bestseller list, a middle grade book. The plot involves a corporate conspiracy to pollute and poison uh, the environment that these two children have to discover and try to thwart. That's, it's very timely, and I think kids are really responding to that book. And Sacker wrote Holes, which was turned into a right. movie. And, and the review is by Elliot Schreffer, who our readers might know is the author of Endangered, right? Endangered, right. He, has, he writes um, really well about environmental issues for children. All right. A couple of books by... Um, Librarian favorites, Jack Gantos, Gary D. Schmidt. Um, Yeah, we have a review of of two short novels that are similar in theme about troubled middle school boys who kind of have, at that moment where they have a decision to make, are they going to go with that charismatic older boy who you know is not going to uh, bring you to great places, or are you going to resist? And what what happens uh, so often is... is, um, how hard it is to resist the lore of this older boy who you know is trouble, but he's fascinating and thrilling to you. And both of them um, handle that theme really nicely in those books. Before we talk about our personal favorites of the season, um, let's touch on YA. What's Is there a big standout YA book uh, reviewed in this issue? Well, I loved The Hired Girl by Laura Amy Schlitz, another multiple award winner. Um, and this is a book set in 1911 about a girl who comes from an isolated farm environment in Pennsylvania who was raised Catholic um, and runs away from her abusive father after her mother dies and is taken in by a and cultivated affluent Jewish family in Baltimore. And I think this is, you don't often see religion um, treated in novels, for in YA novels, so so honestly and sensitively. And, and, it, and it's funny, and it's also a book that is 
very much in the tradition of the young, book-loving heroine, you know, Jane Eyre and um, Ivanhoe are, are books that are kind of embedded in the plot of this novel. The heroine wants to better herself through literature, and that's kind of a, a timeless plot that's nice to see done so well. We like that plot we here. We love that plot. <laughs> All right, before you go, Maria, is there like one or two books um, that you uh, – want to call out. We're coming to this a little bit late just because our issue is in November, but I really loved Sonia Manzano's memoir, Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. Sonia Manzano, of course, of Sesame Street fame. And, you know, I, for one, am always surprised when someone who is so talented in one area can also write. And she's one of those people. She's kind of the, the Patti Smith, I think, for, for children's literature. She's It's a beautiful, powerful book that I think um, this is one that I would recommend for adults or teenagers. About, about It's about her childhood and her teenage years and her um, time at Carnegie Mellon University where she suddenly realized, wow, I, you know, I actually can you know, become an, an actress. I can create art and change my life. And it's, it's really beautiful and well done. All right. Lots of great books for people of all ages. Thanks, Maria. Greg Coles joins us now with lots of bestseller news. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's new on this list? Yes, there Everything. is. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the fiction side, there are five new titles. Starting down at number 13, Glenn Beck, the conservative radio host, has a novel called The Immortal Nicholas. It's a Santa Claus novel. It's uh, imagining a history for Santa Claus that ties him all the way back to the origins of the Christ story. So uh, putting the Christ back in Christmas. Is it a conservative Santa Claus story? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. It, it's a Christian Santa Claus story. Then at number 11, um, David Mitchell returns to the list with his book Slade House. This is kind of a follow-up to The Bone Clocks Uh Features the same fantasy elements, um, the same war between supernatural creatures, um, good and evil. And we'll give it away. It's being reviewed next week in the book review. Yes, by Scarlett Thomas. Then at number seven, um, Alexander McCall Smith continues his number one ladies detective agency series with a book called The Woman Who Walked in Sunshine. That's the 16th book in the series. It's new at number seven. Uh, another series continues up at number four. Elizabeth George continues her Scotland Yard mystery series with a novel called A Banquet of Consequences. And series again uh, at number three. Patricia Cornwell is back with the 23rd book in her Case Scarpetta um, medical examiner series. Uh, this book is called Depraved Heart, and it is the highest ranked newcomer on the fiction list at number three. All right, let's go over to nonfiction. Nonfiction, there are even more new titles, uh, seven new titles out of the 15 on the list. Again, starting down at number 13, Gloria Steinem uh, has a memoir called My Life on the Road. It's partly about her life and partly a history of the feminist movement, which, of course, uh, she has personified for the last 50 years or more now. Uh, then at number 12, Ted Koppel, the former ABC anchor, has a book called Lights Out, not a memoir. This is um, straight journalism looking at the possibility of a terrorist attack on America's electric grid and um, what that would do uh, to the government and to the citizens. He also kind of um, takes a side trip looking at preppers who are taking steps to prepare for that uh, on the theory that the government is not. Then at uh, number 11, the 
actress and especially musician Carrie Brownstein, uh, famous now for Portlandia, but really she uh, made her name as the guitarist for the riot girl band Slater Kinney, uh, has a memoir called Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. And it is especially the story of Slater Kinney um, and her life as a musician. I feel like there are, there are those people who think of her as an actress, and then there are those people who are very adamant about thinking of her <laughs> as a musician. Uh, she's right among these people. <laughs> she, she was guitarist and sometimes singer for Slater Kinney, and they were really um, kind of a seminal post-punk band and on the leading edge of the whole Riot Girl movement. Very strong feminist band um, and just great cutting-edge rock music at the time. And they, they have reunited and are on the road again. Next one is an actor-actor, not a musician-actor. Yes, next Next one is an actor-actor from a long family of actor-actors, Drew Barrymore, who, of course, uh, was famous as a child star and is still famous as an adult star, has her first memoir since she was 14 years old. Uh, This book is called Wildflower, new at number nine, and she uh, looks back on her career and on life as a mother and um, really just talks about her wild days and her flower days, I guess. (laughs) Wildflower, new at number nine. What was her first memoir called? Uh, When she was 14, uh, she wrote a memoir called Little Girl Lost. I feel like someone needs to line up the two books side by side and like compare the passages of all of those early childhood stories. Yeah, I'm going to guess that in Little Girl Lost, she did not tell a story that she tells in this one um, about being drunk and 11 years old at a hotel in Germany and going and stealing people's dirty laundry out of their laundry bags and just throwing it off a balcony into a river far below. That's the kind of story you only want to tell once, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) All right, what's next on the list? Next up at number seven is a book called Notorious R.B. By Erin Carmone and Shanna Nizhnik. Uh, this is a book. It's sort of a biography and sort of just a scrapbook. It grows out of the author's Tumblr feed, also called Notorious RBG, which is a, really a celebration of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court Justice. Then at number three, the radio host of Savage Nation, Michael Savage, has a new book called Government Zero. This is sort of a Nonfiction analog to Michelle Welbeck's new novel. It uh, argues that progressives and Islamicists are trying to ruin your life and control everything. And finally, at number two, uh, just in time for your post Halloween festivities, uh, Stacey Schiff, the journalist and popular historian, has a book called The Witches, uh, which looks at the Salem witch trials and kind of puts them in their historical context. All right, let's see what we get for Thanksgiving books this year. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. <laughs> Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.